Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Thank you, our Heavenly Father. We praise you because you are a great and a mighty God, awesome beyond our imagination, yet close enough that we could call you Abba, Father. We celebrate your presence. We thank you for the past week, which was one that was full of triumphs, stillmates, and perhaps even disappointments. But despite our circumstances, you still remain God. We surrender Robert as he delivers the word this morning. We ask that the Holy Spirit guides him as he speaks. And the Holy Spirit also opens our minds and our hearts to receive the word as it comes to us. As we'll be going further in this generation next, which seems very relevant in this time that we are in. Lord, we ask that this word won't be something that we'll just learn intellectually, but something that we'll practice for the rest of our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you because this morning we come to you like little children with expectation. And like little children, we believe and we know that you'll answer our prayers, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Fruka. Fruka's already preaching when he's praying, so you know we're already halfway there. It's awesome. <laughs> Love it. So before I uh, do this sermon, I want to invite uh, Tommy and Brittany Stigall to come up. They are some missionary friends of ours and of Mercy House. Uh, they serve with the International Mission Board, which is the uh, missions arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. You guys can use that. Um, and 
about 50,000 Southern Baptist churches all around um, the United States give into something called the Cooperative Program. We do this as well. And that fund funds a lot of different things. It helps to fund seminaries, which uh, V and Alden are benefiting from uh, right now as they take seminary classes at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it is part of the money that helped us plant this church uh, in 1999. Uh, but it's also funding about 3,600 missionaries around the world who are reaching the nations with the gospel. And so these are two of those, and uh, we're really glad to have you. And uh, I'm going to let them tell, tell you more about who they are and uh, what they're doing. Uh, thank y'all. It's hard to be. Thank you. <laughs> thank y'all. Sorry, we're from the South. <laughs> yeah, so we ain't from around here. Um, but we really appreciate y'all. Uh, letting us be here today and uh, it's hard to be two people that represent 3,600 people but um, we'll try that today. I'm Tommy, this is Brittany and we have two girls back there, Elliot and Amelia and we have on the floor playing and we have a baby boy on the way and we've been, yeah, and uh, yeah, representation we got. Yeah, I've been, been outnumbered for a while. Um, we have been serving in Central Asia um, for, we're stateside right now, but we served for about four years in Central Asia, and uh, Brittany's going to share with you how we got there. Um, so when I was in college, we're from Memphis, Tennessee, and I went to University of Memphis, and um, there's a college ministry there that went to Central Asia my last year of college, and um, I'd already, like, really wanted to go overseas at some point, I thought just short term. Um, so when this trip opened up, it wasn't anywhere I'd really thought about going before, but I went because God had already been kind of working on my heart in that area. So I went for a week, and God really used it to break my heart for the nations and for Muslim people specifically, because um, the country that we serve in is 99% Muslim, so, uh, which is the one that I went to on this trip. <laughs> so I went for a week, and um, I had heard about this opportunity through the IMB for recent college graduates called Journeyman and it's a two-year program. Um, you don't have to raise money, which is amazing if you're, if you're a member of a Southern Baptist church like this one. Um, so um, I went for two years um, to this really large city overseas and taught English some. Uh, we, we had an English club that was a free conversation in order to get people in so that we could serve them with the need that they had, but also um, develop relationships and share the gospel with them. So we did see um, a couple of students in those two years come to know the Lord. Um, it's really slow work there, but uh, it was really encouraging for me to see all the small ways that God was at work there. So um, Tommy came that when I was overseas. He was working with the college ministry that I was a part of in college, um, but we hadn't really met until he came to um, Central Asia. <laughs> Almost did. <laughs> uh, but he came for a week, and then he came back for the summer. And then when my term was up, I went back to Memphis, and we got married, had Elliot, our, our oldest daughter, um, who's five now. And about the time we had her was when we were in the process to move overseas. But it wasn't really that easy of a journey to get there. We weren't really certain that that's what we needed to do. Um, but we had started working with the college ministry that I was a part of in college. And um, every year we took teams back for a week. And so Tommy and I would both lead those trips. Um, and... Over time, we went like five years in a row, and we were like, okay, God just used those short-term trips to, to kind of keep saying, okay, this isn't enough, you need to go. So we ended up going and serving in Central Asia in the same place that I did as a college student and recent college graduate. 
Um, and we were on a team that was focused on church planning, which is every IMB missionary. Um, and it's probably pretty similar to this region of America where the work is really slow. You, it takes years and years and years to develop something. Um, and so a lot of it's just pulling up the, the rocks that are barriers to people understanding the gospel. Um, and so we were learning the language and trying to get students to come over so that we could develop some work with college students overseas. Um, we're not college students anymore, so uh, having people come even for like a, a week or a month or a semester is really helpful. So we were, that was kind of our, our job there, was trying to get cultural exchange is what we explained it to the, the locals there. So, um, yeah. I think that's it. And so, in uh, also at the same time, uh, we're we're being a little bit vague about where we were just because of security issues. Um, but we had to learn language, and Brittany already had a head start on me. Um, and so, I eventually moved from different types of language learning, um, like tutor or uh, classroom, to like an actual class on a campus. Um, which was amazing because I could not only interact with people that were native, but I could also interact with a lot of people from around the world. And uh, just one story, we, we just kind of, we fun function with the mentality of whoever's kind of in front of us is uh, who the Lord has brought to us. And so in the classroom, I, um, I would always sit in the back. As an American, I draw a lot of attention. I don't look like anybody, so I would sit in the back and... Uh, and try not to draw a lot of attention and just let the Lord bring people. And uh, so I sat in the back and uh, there was an Iranian girl in class who her first question, which is the question I get from everybody is, why are you here? Um, like, why would you leave America? And so uh, she and I began friendship every day uh, during the class. Uh, she would say, hey, have you, have you read this book? Have you, have you listened to this TED talk? Have you... So, like so many things, she was definitely seeking, and so um, I said, hey, do you want to meet my family? So she came over at the end of that first week, and um, then she started going to church with us, and over time, uh, she, we started doing, what's it called? Chronological Bible story. Chronological Bible story. Yeah, kind of creation to Christ, and so we, we did that with her, and we didn't get to finish because of COVID. And then in COVID, she had a bit of a meltdown because COVID was really hard on everybody. And, um, and when we came out of COVID, uh, we reconnected with her and just like, where are you at right now? And uh, pick things back up. Well, she was going to go back to Iran. And uh, the Lord just providentially delayed her flight by three weeks. And so she got to go to a baptism with us. Uh, got to hear uh, part of the problem with like, uh, uh, Americans trying to share with people cross-culturally is they're kind of like, well, of course you're a Christian because you grew up in America and you've got yada, yada, yada. Yeah, that's their kind of understanding. And so she needed to hear it from other people. And so she began to hear testimonies from people that were not Americans. And, um, and we weren't the ones that ended up leading her to Christ. Um, was it like, was like three days before she left to go back to Iran, um, she became a believer. And it was just, she called us up and she said, I'm going to be at your house in an hour. I've got great news. She walked in and go, I'm a Christian now. And we we're, and that was just a journey. We found out not too long after that, that she had met an Iranian couple um, two weeks before I had started that class. 
and they had they were believers and they had um, kind of prepared her in some ways just through a very short conversation and began praying for her that she would come to know Christ and then I met her two weeks later and in class and then a year later she became a believer yeah so it's a slow process and um, we are whoever's in front of us is who we reach out to and we also believe we're not necessarily the people that are gonna be the people that always reach the people that we're trying to serve if that makes sense it could be it could be Iranian it could be someone else and so we just need to be faithful to whoever's in front of us just a couple more things sorry um, so we are in February we came back for a year and it got a little bit extended because we're having a baby so we'll go back in February and we're going to the other side of the city um, to join the team that I was on when I was uh, right out of college so they have an established English club and um, they it's like a community center and so it's really easy to plug people in and meet people a lot easier anyway I would say <laughs> um, and so we're really excited about that we have um, we have some great teammates that we're joining um, and but you guys can definitely be praying for us it's a lot of transition our kids are uh, Elliot our oldest is starting kindergarten and we'll homeschool her in the fall until we get there and then or probably all of next year and then figure things out <laughs> she's waving <laughs> well she was um, anyway uh, so we're doing that and um, you guys can be praying for that but also um, just to let you know there are opportunities if you're interested in serving overseas in general or coming to where we're at um, we have a lot of like really easy ways to plug in college students specifically or recent graduates um, to the programs that we're doing over there. Um, so if you know anybody or if you're one of those people that have been kind of curious about what it would look like just for, you know, a week, a summer, whatever, um, you can come and talk to us afterwards. But we also have a lot of um, knowledge, I guess, experience with other opportunities outside of where we are. So if you have a specific area of the world you're interested in, you can come talk to us as well. Um, and then we have these prayer cards that I'll put at the back. They only have our last name and our, our first and last names. That's it in our email address. <laughs> but, um, but you can email us if you're interested in getting our newsletters that we send out. Um, the great thing about the IMB is that we don't have to raise support, so we're not asking you for anything <laughs> except prayer um, and partnership if you're interested in that. So, um, And, yeah, just be praying for people in Central Asia. It's a very lost part of the world. Um, where we live specifically is a lot more Western. It's a big mix of, like, East and West. So... Um, even if people identify as being Muslim, they're very um, secular or pretty much agnostic, I would say, for the most part. So um, sometimes those bridges are a little bit more vague to cross. So you guys can be praying for us as we go back and try to reach specifically college, gradu uh, college students and graduates um, in Central Asia. So. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you guys. So... Um, Melanie and I have both been in, to the city where they're serving, and we um, were able to see kind of firsthand some of, some of the stuff that God is doing, especially between, uh, in the generation of 18 to 25-year-olds. Um, there's, there's just some openness right now that is really strategic, and so I would encourage you to talk to these guys and just find out more. So let's pray. God, we are so grateful. Uh, for Tommy and for Brittany and for the girls and for their willingness uh, to leverage their lives for the gospel. Um, and God, you call us all to that, and um, you've called them to that in a unique way. And so, Lord, it is glorious 
and it is hard. And so I pray, God, you would give them grace to bear up under the hard parts uh, and that the glory part would, would really just be in front and center. It would be on the front of their minds and hearts as they see you uh, and your unfolding plan for the nations. And um, God, would you encourage them? Would you bring teammates around them? Will, would you give them wisdom as they try to figure out another cultural context? Would you give them miraculous abilities with language that they never dreamed possible? And um, God, we just thank you for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at uh, Deuteronomy 6. If you haven't uh, opened that up in your Bible or on your phone, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, we have been talking about the next generation, what it means to pass on the faith uh, to the next generation, both our biological children, if, we, if you're a parent of children, but, but also spiritual children. Everyone's supposed to have spiritual children, making disciples uh, of the nations. And the American church in general... Uh, is not doing a very good job of that. They're, they're not handing the faith off to the next generation all that well. It doesn't take much of a Google search to figure out that that's the case. There's lots of uh, studies that have been done. Uh, Pew Research uh, has, has just come out with a 10-year study from 2009-2019. Uh, that is about the general population. It's broken down by age group. And so general population, there's a decrease in about 10 to 12 percent of people that have said in the past, like in 2009, that they're Christians. There's also an increase of about 10 percent of people saying they're absolutely not affiliated with any kind of religion. They're known as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. When you look at the breakdown of the age groups, you, you start to see the older generations, there's really not that much change, you know, there may be 2 percent less that are saying they're not Christians. 2% more or 1% more that are saying that uh, they are a nun. But you get down to millennials, which we really haven't had enough time to figure out those Gen Zers yet, but millennials who were born between about 1980 and 2000 uh, is pretty stark. And so you've got 16% more uh, than in 2009 that are saying that they are not a Christian. And then 13% more of those millennial generation that are saying that they are nuns. Even more disturbing are the, 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 the rate at which millennials are leaving the church. And so in general, 2 in 10 uh, millennial Americans under 30 believe attending a church is important, right? So about 20% uh, countrywide. But what's really troubling is 59% of millennials raised in the church have dropped out. So you got 60% of those born between 1980 and 2000, and they're like, see ya, I'm done. Done with church, doing my own thing, I'm out. So many have been trying to figure this thing out, right? And, and so... The tendency is toward sort of pragmatic solutions. It's like, well, we need better kids' programs. We need better teen programs. We need more exciting events. We need expensive camps with, you know, zip lines and go-kart racing. And these things are they're not necessarily bad. Right? I, I spent four years as a youth pastor. I did lots of pizza parties and uh, crazy youth camps, and I saw kids changed forever with the gospel. Lois Graham Mason was one of those. Um, 
I've also spent the last 20 years being the camp pastor of a summer camp, every, every summer. And it was hard, it was a lot of work, and it, it was exhausting. But, but I, I saw God reaching students. Tommy Moore is one of those, was reached to that camp. So this stuff works. It works. And God uses it. But it's becoming painfully obvious that this, these things are not the silver bullet. That this is not what is going to, to turn the tide among younger generations in especially the U.S. I think the solution is hard, but I think it's simple. I think the solution is hard, but I think it's simple. The solution, as far as it depends on us, is something I'm going to call gospel fluency. And this is not a word I made up. This is, this is something you, you Google this, you're going to find all kinds of uh, um, articles on gospel fluency. And so what's meant by that is you need to think about the truth of the gospel like a language. You're fluent in a language. You're fluent in the truth of the gospel. When I was learning Spanish in college, there'd be a unit on clothes, on going to the market, on family relationships, and you worked on the vocabulary list for that particular domain, and then you came to class, and then you would try to have a conversation based on the vocabulary and the grammar that you had crammed for the last you know, couple of days. And I remember taking my oral exam for Spanish 1 at the University of Texas, and I had picked a partner who was fluent, and I did it on purpose, right? I'm like, she can carry the weight of this conversation, hopefully, and I'll get a decent grade. So we go into my professor's office, who is literally from Spain. I should have been my first clue, like, it's not going to go well. Uh, and the professor would introduce certain topics. I could hear the topic changing from ropa to comida to familia. And I would try to enter into those conversations, but I couldn't because I, I wasn't fluent. I couldn't apply the vocab and the grammar that I had been studying to an actual conversation. I wasn't fluent. I made a D in that five-credit class and I had to retake it. I mean, it was one of the most painful experiences of my college career. Now, this can be true of us in regard to the gospel. We may know some general topics. Sin, cross, salvation, forgiveness, holiness. We may even be able to hold our own in a small group Bible discussion. Look pretty good, you know, kind of walk out, patting yourself on the back. Man, I really nailed it, right? But when it comes to applying the gospel holistically to every part of our lives, we are oftentimes not fluent. We are not fluent. And if we're not fluent in our own application of gospel truth to our lives, how will we ever pass gospel fluency to the next generation? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The solution is hard, but it is simple. So what are we supposed to do about that? I think Deuteronomy 6 is a good place to start because it speaks of, of a fluency with the truth of God that, that is really profound. And so this sermon, one way to think about it is we're, we're prepping the parents, right? We've been given kind of the vision of passing on this, this sort of this legacy of passing on the faith to the next generation. We talked about having babies and making babies and raising those babies. And so a lot of this has just been visionary kind of stuff, right? 
And, and, and now we're kind of preparing the parent or the disciple maker to be able to pass the faith to the next generation. So if you're taking notes, three little points here in this uh, sermon. I don't know, why do sermons all have three points? I don't know, uh, but mine seem to as well. So you got the long-term goal, you got the short-term goal, and then how to reach the goals, okay? Long-term, short-term, how to reach the goal. Long-term goal is legacy. Long-term goal is legacy. Now, Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon to the nation of Israel. It's a recapitulation of the other four books that are in the Torah, the five books of Moses. He has taught and corrected and counseled for 40 years as their pastor. And now he's got one more sermon, and it's Deuteronomy. And so he, he's, he's recounting what God's done. He's reteaching some of the things that have been taught throughout the years. And it is a great summary. And in this Deuteronomy 6, he's not just passing on the truths about God and who God is and what he's done. He's saying, here's how you pass on the truths about God and who he is and what he's done. And it's just this beautiful little description of how you participate in this long-term goal of a legacy of hearing the truth of God and passing on that truth to the next generation. You can hear it in the first three verses here, Deuteronomy 6. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Right? So there he's saying, I want you to know this stuff. I want you to take it with you to the promised land. But then in verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of, our fa- of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. There's a long-term vision right there of a legacy. Now, there's a couple of ideas I want to draw attention to. There's many ideas there. We could, we, could, we could preach a whole series on that little passage right there. But the first idea is the coupling of belief and practice. Belief and practice. He's saying to them, I want you to know the statutes and the laws, the rules. And not only do I want you to know them, I want you to keep His statutes and His commandments. I want you to be careful to do them. And so he's not just wanting them to be biblically, theologically informed. He wants them to keep that which they know. He couples both belief and practice. Right doctrine is so important, and so is right practice. Both are important. Oftentimes people try to pit these together, or pit these against each other. Actually, I'm pitting them together. <laughs> Uh, pit these against each other. And they'll say, ah, oh, we don't need to get too up in arms about doctrine. We just need to love people. And you know, that might work for a generation, but that next generation will not have the gospel feel that they need to continue in the practice. It will completely fizzle. The reverse is true as well. An intellectual-only faith that is sterile and doesn't include practice. It devolves 
into disunity. It, it devolves into pride. It devolves in the loss of the very doctrine that you're trying to keep because people associate the doctrine with the disunity. And that's part of why some people are like, ah, oh, doctrine, don't throw that out. And Moses is letting the Israelites know, no, 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 you need both right doctrine. You need belief and you need practice. You need both of those if you're going to be a part of a legacy. I mean, this is partly the, uh, the understanding or, the, or the, the thinking behind the discipleship essentials material that we've used in our discipleship groups. There's four units in that book. They're all excellent, but we've been using the first two units, and they are both belief and practice. There's basic beliefs in one of the units in, in like six different weeks, but then there's practice. How do you pray? How do you read your Bible? How do you worship? How, how do you do the basics of a Christian, right? We're, we're wanting to pass that on so it can be part of both you practicing and believing, but also the next generation that you will raise up. Uh, this idea of legacy is, has been spoken of in the first sermon in this um, sermon series. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that first sermon if you haven't already. Now, the short-term goal is love. It's love. Isn't that interesting? He starts off with this whole like belief and practice statement, and then he moves to a conversation about love. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's a beautiful synopsis of this goal that is the goal of God's revelation of Himself to Israel. All the moral laws, from everything from sexual ethics to how you run your business, the goal of that was to elicit love from His people for Him. All the civil laws. I mean, everything from where to bury your poop to what to do with mildew. It's in there. All of the, Even that is for the purpose of eliciting love from God's people for Himself. Everything that God did to show His concern and care for Israel. Everything from parting the Red Sea to giving them the manna in the desert to knocking down the walls at Jericho. He, he's, he's wanting His people to respond to those things by loving Him. And not just some obligatory, ritualistic kind of love. Real love. Love from the heart. The very center of your being. The place where everything is springing out of. Your mind, your will, your emotions. That center, that core, is the place from which God is wanting us to love Him. The kind of love we all want from our spouse, from our kids, from our friends. Not just some sense of religious duty, but real love. And Moses says, you shall love. Right? It's sort of like half command and half prophecy. Like, yes, it's being commanded, but it's also being uh, prophesied. Moses is saying, God is doing something that is going to result in people loving Him with all their heart and their mind and their soul and their strength. This is what God is up to. And God's not asking them to do something that He hasn't done already. When you go to Deuteronomy 7, you hear this, verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be the people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, quote, 
set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses lets the Israelites know, God didn't choose you, Israel, because you're so amazing. He didn't choose you because you were obedient or you were you know, exceptionally good-looking. He chose you because He loves you. He set His love on you. And so all of God's actions toward Israel were motivated by a holy love, desiring that they too would then love Him back with a reciprocal kind of love. Uh, And again, this is not surface-level love. This is from the heart. God loves us from the heart. He loves His people from the heart, and He desires His people to love Him back from the heart. Um, We talked a lot in the Romans uh, sermon series about the different operating system, right? I mean, you can see the different operating system even in the Old Testament. That by the grace of God, human beings transform so much that they receive love from God and give love back to God. Only possible, really, by the gospel. This is what we want to instill in our children. We don't just want to merely pass on some rules and some regulations to keep them from destroying their lives. We don't just want to give them some religious tradition that'll be kind of the glue that'll stick our family together. We want our biological and our spiritual sons and daughters to know that they're loved by God and to respond by loving God back. This is the goal. This is the goal. The short-term Goal. Jesus taught this to his own disciples, right? John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is no shaming technique by Jesus where he's like, oh, you're not following my commandments? Then you don't love me. That's not what he's doing. He's, 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 he's talking about the new operating system. He's saying, you're not going to be following my commandments out of shame or fear. You're going to do it out of love. You're going to receive love from God in the gospel. And then that's going to elicit love from you in return. Now, this love for God is also coupled with love for neighbor. This is clear in the Old Testament, but Jesus really shines a light on this in the New Testament. There's a conversation he has, actually has it multiple times in the Gospels, where he's being asked about, quote, the greatest commandment. They're wanting to know that one commandment, right? Give me that, that one commandment that sums everything up, Nice and simple, easy, put it on the bumper sticker. We'll, we'll, we won't forget it, Jesus. Please tell me. And this is, this is the, one of those conversations. Matthew 22, he says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's really brilliant what Jesus is doing here. They're asking for one single solitary truth, and he's like, yeah, you can't really hold one truth without this other truth. You love God and you love your neighbor. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, and then he quotes from Leviticus 
19. And it's not that Jesus' math is bad. You know? He knows what one is and what two is. He's teaching them that you cannot decouple the love for God and the love for neighbor. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. This is, this is, this is what we're, we're, we're trying to pass on, this belief and practice to the next generation such that they know that they are loved by God and they love God and neighbor. Your love for neighbor is a good way to test whether or not you do love God. You can see 1 John with, for a lot of this. I don't have time to quote, but you can go back and look at 1 John and the argument that is exactly that. We're sinners, right? And as sinners, we're easily self-deceived. And so I know it's hard to believe, but people can actually pray, attend church, read their Bibles, join committees. They can be part of small groups, and they can be the most unloving people you've ever met. It lets us know, no, they don't love God if they don't also love their neighbor. Jesus often confronts this with the Pharisees who really felt like they were loving God well. And he says things to them like in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He's like, you're, you're really zealous about all of the rituals and the religious practices, but you've, you, you've forgotten the main thing which is a a genuine love for God and actual love for people. So this long and this short-term goal is to be a part of this legacy of of belief and practice that, that leads to love, receiving the love of God and loving God back, which includes loving neighbor. Family life is a great place to learn this. It's so perfect. It's almost like God designed it. Ah, He did. Oftentimes, your neighbor is in the bunk bed above you. Your neighbor occasionally bites you, steals your toys, eats your food, even screams at you. What a perfect environment in which to learn to love God and neighbor. It's even helpful for mom and dad to learn to love God and neighbor. There were multiple times when we were raising our kids where I'd get a phone call and Melanie was in the garage, in the car, with the door shut, kids are in the house, and she's crying because it's such a hard day, and the kids are driving her crazy, right? What an opportunity for love for God and for neighbor. I didn't say that to her on the phone. So, um, I think about how many conversations with kids, right? One kid's punched the other kid, and you're like, now ask forgiveness, you know, from your sibling. You know, you're trying to do the gospel parenting thing, and they're like, I'm sorry, you know? And you're like, Let's try to be sincere, you know. Let's, let's try to mean that when we say it. I can't mean it. Actually, you're right. You can't. But Jesus can help you. Because thankfully, Jesus really meant it when he forgave you. So let's go to Christ and let's thank him for forgiving us. And let's ask him to help us to forgive our neighbor who happens to be in the bunk bed above you. Church life is also a great place to learn about loving God and neighbor, almost as if it was designed by God. Oh, it was. Sorry. Um, So many hurt feelings and grievances in the church, not unlike children saying, I'm sorry, but I'm going to avoid you like the plague for the next decade, right? This this, This is very similar to family life. But instead, healthy churches ask God for grace 
They asked God to be given something that is miraculous in order to give and receive forgiveness and experience true reconciliation. If you don't commit yourself to a local church, I don't think you can learn how to love God and love neighbor. Otherwise, you, you will merely just dabble in relationships. You'll just hang out with those that you have an affinity for, that those that you like, and then when you don't like them anymore, you'll move on to someone else that you have an affinity for. Some people do this with churches. They are in a church for a little while, and they kind of like it, and then they, ha- they have some kind of a, a fallout with a person. They go, oh, I don't like this church. I'm going to the next church. Well, they're not learning to love God and neighbor. What they don't realize is that the difficulties experienced inside of church life sometimes are just what God ordered in order to teach us to love God and neighbor. Now, this experience of family life and church life together is a powerful force in the discipling of our biological kids. Uh, Melanie's asked often, like, what's your secret? You, you have such great kids, and you're such a great mom. Like, what's, what's the secret? And, and she's like, you know what? Take them to church. Take them to church. Not just to the kids' programming. Take them to the prayer night. Take them to hear the missionary speaker. Take them to work day. Let them be around people who, who know and love God. People of di- different generations, different ages. Let them know that it's not just mommy and daddy who love Jesus and want to follow Jesus as disciples. There's a whole bunch of other people from a lot of different age groups, from many different nations, diff- different kinds of backgrounds. They love Jesus too, and they want to make disciples too, just like mommy and daddy. There's a tremen- p- tremendous, uh, powerful forming agent in the lives of children. Rich Mullins, none of you know who he is. I know. He's, he's back in the 80s and 90s. But he has this song called Boy Like Me, Man Like You. And he's singing about his upbringing in the church. And he's singing about listening to the old men pray. And the the lyric goes like this, that they would tell stories about the saints of old, stories about their faith. They say stories like that make a boy grow bold. Stories like that make a man walk straight. Now the old men and the old women in my Children's life, for the most part, were college students, but they had stories. They had stories of going out on summer mission to other nations and sharing the gospel. They they had stories of sharing the gospel with their unsaved parents. They they had stories of, of, of loving and serving and sharing with their roommates in these five colleges and seeing some of those roommates come to faith in Jesus, get baptized and sit at our dining room table. It made them bold. It made them strong. There's something powerful in coupling both family life and church life in the lives of our biological children. The coupling of family life and church life also is a powerful force in the lives of our spiritual kids. You don't know how many college students with tears in their eyes, literally, telling me it has meant so much to be in your home to eat at your table, to play frisbee in the backyard with your kids, to stay in your house for months at a time, and how that was used to shape them. It shaped me as a college student. My spiritual mentor, Tom Westbrook, and his wife, Jill, had us in their home so many times when I was a college student. He's just recently passed away last week, and I'm I'm just flooded with memories of being in his home 
And seeing him loving his kids, correcting his kids, loving his wife, fighting with his wife, making up with his wife. I mean, that all happened the first day I was in his house. <laughs> but I just soaked it up. Because I, I, I needed to see like a, a, a Christian family who was like serious about Jesus. It is so powerful to couple both family life and church life, both in the li- lives of our, our biological uh, kids, but also in the lives of our spiritual kids. So how do we reach the goal? Both this long-term legacy of passing on belief and practice, making sure that that is eliciting a love for God, love for people. And the way we reach the goal is, I, I talked about it at the beginning, gospel fluency. I'll never be able to pass the faith on to biological children or spiritual children unless you are fluent in the gospel. And, and so we are, through whatever it is we're fluent in, we are passing on a love for something. If you're a parent, you have kids, I'm telling you, you're teaching those kids to love something with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. You, don't, you think you're neutral, but you're not. You're teaching them to love something. You may be teaching them to love with all their heart and their mind and soul and strength, getting away for the weekend, water skiing, having time on the you know, snow slopes, that may be what you're teaching them to love. You may be teaching them to love soccer or baseball or ultimate frisbee. You may be teaching them to love with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength to make straight A's and get to a really good Ivy League college. You may be teaching them to love with all their heart, family time, that the family is what matters above everything else. And these aren't bad things, but they're not God. <laughs> There's only one who's worthy to be loved with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and it's got the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Now love Him, not just with religious rituals. Love Him from your heart. And so this, this, this is what we want to we pass on, and we have to be fluent in this gospel and in this love for Him. Many a Christian parent in the U.S. has spent hours and hours on soccer fields and dance studios, shuttling kids back and forth to music lessons. Uh, they've, they've shelled out thousands and thousands of dollars for specialized camps in the summers. And all the while, many of them have maintained kind of a nominal spirituality at home and a nominal engagement with church. And then junior grows up and junior goes to college. And we're like, why are 59% of the juniors don't want to follow Jesus? Why would they? They've been taught to love with all their heart, soul, and strength, something besides God. You may have said you should love God with your mouth, but you've got to have gospel fluency in order to pass that on. Now, we don't want to push this too far. Anyone who becomes a Christian, it's a miracle. It is ultimately what God does. But He uses means to accomplish miracles. He uses means to accomplish miracles. He uses the means of what parents and disciple makers do in the lives of others in order to bring about the miracle of Christian conversion. Uh, Moses describes this gospel fluency, verses 6 and following, a really profound way. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. He's teaching them that this passing on to the next generation is going to require you to be both deep and daily. Both deep and daily. Okay? If there's anything you'll walk out of here with, I'm hoping you'll remember deep and daily. It's deep. Notice that the commands are from the heart. Verse 6, these words I command you today shall be on your heart, the very center of your being. This is not just window dressing for your life. This is your core. This is your, you're constantly learning more of what the gospel is, and you're applying it to every domain in your life, and you're doing that for your kids. Your kids are screaming at each other. You don't just tell them to hush. You explain in little kid language, hey, you're screaming at your sister, and your sister was made by God. God loves your sister. God's God's given dignity and worth to your sister, and he thinks she's worth a lot, and you're not treating her that way, right? We need forgiveness from Jesus for that, and we need to ask Jesus to help us to treat our sister like she really is one who has dignity. Or your child wants to gorge on a third piece of chocolate cake. And, 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 you know, you're like, instead of just saying, no, you'll get sick and throw up, right? You say, actually, God made you. He gave you your body. So we want to actually take care of our bodies. And eating a third piece of cake, even though Daddy's over there doing it, don't, don't do that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, you, you want to do this for God and for His glory. And it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it, I want to eat three pieces of cake too. So let's ask Jesus to help us because we need help from the gospel, to be able to not eat three pieces of cake so that we can honor Jesus today with our bodies. Or your child has like been to Disneyland last month, and now they want to go to Disneyland this month. And they're screaming, I want to go to Disneyland! Right? And you don't just say, you're so selfish, go back to your room. You say, hey, I'd like to go to Disneyland too. I had a great time. It was amazing. Um, I have some memories. I, like, but you know what? We are not going to spend another $10,000 on Disneyland. Actually, we're, we're going to offer that up to gospel mission because we want to see the gospel go to the nations because Jesus has saved us and been generous to us, and now we want to be generous in the giving of to gospel mission. That's, that's gospel fluency. It's not just get yourself to church, which is helpful, right, as we talked about before, but, but you're gospeling your kids as you go. And it's deep, it's deep, and it's daily. It's that you don't just do that one day. You do that a lot, right? I mean, this is what Moses is describing. You teach them diligently, verse 7, to your children. You talk to them when you sit in their house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's pretty comprehensive, wouldn't you say? Like, do we talk about it first thing in the morning? Yes. Do we talk about it all during the day? Yes. Do we talk about it at night when we go to bed? Yes. There's like a thread of, of talking about the truth of the gospel throughout the entire day, day after day after day. Now, he's not describing like a formal Bible study that's like eight hours long, you know? He, he's talking about this ongoing conversation with those that you're both raising up as spiritual children, but also those that, you, that are your biological children. Um, there's a, a lot of ways that I failed as a dad. There, there's so many families that do parenting way better 
than, than, than definitely me. I don't know about Melanie. She's awesome. Um, but, but as a dad, I always felt like I'm just a B minus, maybe a C plus, right? But, but one thing that I know that I did is that they knew dad was all in. And if, if a topic came up, pastor dad was speaking to it with the gospel. And they were waking up and walking in the kitchen and seeing me in the kitchen studying scripture and praying and seeing Melanie in the, in the living room reading scripture and praying. And when there was a crisis in the home, when there was some screaming or there was some, somebody upset or somebody was sad or somebody was angry, whatever, we, we, not every time, but many, many, I mean thousands of conversations with our children about turning to Christ in repentance, receiving his forgiveness and transformation in the gospel. Matt Chandler calls this uh, process, he's a pastor in, in uh, Texas in the Dallas area, he calls this process of, of parenting like this, like you're piling up kindling. Like you can't light the kindling up. God can, is the only one that can do that. But again, he uses means to, to accomplish miracles in our kids' lives and in those that we disciple. We're just piling up kindling and we're praying, God, light that kindling up. And I've got to see that kindling light up in all three of my kids. It's the greatest gift I've ever been given, and I mean that. It's, it's amazing for, for me and Melanie to both watch God light the kindling up. And I think it was particularly just profound in Cooper's life because Cooper was our skeptic. And he, he made family devotion miserable, and he's okay with me saying this. He's in his 20s now, and he's graduated. And we're, so anyway... Um, he would be slumped down in his chair, we're trying to read the Bible, and then we'd ask him to read a passage, and he would mumble, you know, the passage, and he just made it miserable for everyone. Um, and, and, and so there were so many uh, just frustrating situations with him, and, and, and so when he came out of high school, uh, he was doing, taking a gap year in between high school and college, and stuff started happening in his life. He was experiencing some anxiety. Uh, he was experiencing transition. He was experiencing the breakup of a relationship. And so the first couple of weeks of his college was really rocky. And I just happened to be in, uh, on the North Shore, and, and, and he, I was near Gordon College, and he called me up, and he's like, hey, Dad, I know you're around. Can, can we talk? And I'm like, absolutely. And so we went for dinner, and we talked, and then we prayed in the car. And I was like waiting for him to get out of the car, and he's like, Dad, can you still stay? I'm like, yeah, no, totally. Dad, if they say, can you still stay, you stay, okay? Um, <laughs> So we go into the cafeteria, we go upstairs, we're in this little spot that's just totally, we're just the two of us alone. And I can, in this conversation that I have with Cooper, I can see the kindling lighting up. I can see it. I can see him trusting in the grace of the gospel. And as a, as a dad, that, there's just nothing sweeter than seeing God redeem your child and to set them on a course and be a part of the legacy. I can't talk about more of that. I'll start just crying. Um, and the same is true for working with spiritual children. You're just piling up kindling. You're doing Bible study. You're doing discipleship essentials. You're preaching sermons. You're having lots of informal conversations. You're having them over for dinner. You're having them in the backyard to play frisbee. More and more kindling. You're praying, God, set the kindling on fire. I can't set the kindling on fire. And then one day, boom, it happens, right? And sometimes it's, it's, it's a gradual thing, and it's mysterious, and you're not exactly sure, like the moment and all that stuff, but you know when, it, when, when, it, when that person has seen the gospel and beheld it in its glory. Corey Klein, who is part of our church, he may be here this morning, 
Um, but I'm going to tell his story. He grew up in Hadley. He had been going to Young Life, hearing a little bit about the gospel. was kind of unclear what it was. Somebody told him to go to Mercy House, and so he came to Mercy House on his own. He's sitting in the second row. I'm preaching. I can see him. He's just crying during the sermon. I think the first week I tried to find him and talk to him, and he was out the door. Second week, he's back. I can see him. He's crying during the sermon. I get to him the second week. I say, let's, let's meet up in, in Panera Bread. And so Austin Kopak and I, we go to Panera Bread. We sit down. We share the gospel with Corey. I'm like, do you, do you want that? And he's like, yeah, I want it. <laughs> and I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> Yeah, I want it. And so he prayed right there in Panera Bread, and we prayed for him. Now it's six years later. Corey and I are meeting, having coffee, praying together here uh, last week. And through tears that he's trying to choke back, he's praying. He's saying, thank you, God, for giving me the gospel in this church. I don't know who I would be if that hadn't happened. The kindling has ignited (laughs) in his life. And this is, this is this, this gospel fluency of, of deep and daily, passing, passing this, this faith on, this belief, this practice on, and, and, and seeing the Lord use that, imperfect as it is, to then bring people to faith and grow them up as disciples. So how do we respond to this? Some of you are having your kindling lit up right now. You're hearing this, you've been in maybe some religious context, you've gone to church, you're like, Jesus is a nice guy, I should be a nice guy, but you're starting to hear, no, 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 this is something different. And you've come to, to, to understand the gospel, and you're like, I, I know that Christ died for my sins, that this matters, like, for me, like, personally, and you're ready to receive that this morning by faith. I want to encourage you to do that. And the deep and daily experience that you'll have from Jesus going forth It's going to be life-changing. It's going to be eternity-changing. Now, if you hear that and you're like, ah, I'm interested, but I'm not quite there yet, explore that. Talk to someone in this room. There's so many deep and daily people in this room that you could talk to. And certainly, please reach out and talk to me or one of the staff. This 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 is like no other decision that you'll ever make to trust in the grace of the gospel. Now, Another group in the, in the house here this morning and on live stream is the parents. And you're thinking through some of what I said. You're feeling overwhelmed. You're starting to like shame yourself like, oh, I'm not doing it right. I'm not doing it enough. Now, here's what you need. You need some gospel. You need some gospel. You need to come to Christ and, and let him know, like, I, I'm not up to this task because you're not. You're a sinner. Your kids are sinners. I mean, that is doomed to fail. But in the grace of the gospel, God can do glorious things through sinful parents in the lives of sinful children. And so, go to Christ in desperation for help. That's actually part of gospel fluency. It's not, I have everything figured out. I've thought about every topic, and I have an apologetic answer for everything in the whole planet. It's I'm desperate before the Lord. I know I need gospel like I need an IV drip of grace every day. That's, that's part of being gospel fluent is your understanding of the need for the grace of the gospel. And then thirdly, know that everyone is called to respond to this command that we hear in Deuteronomy 6 to pass the faith to the next generation. Whether you have biological uh, children uh, or not, 
right? He's saying to the whole Israelite nation, you shall teach them. He didn't say, just you parents, teach them. He's like, y'all. We had had the Memphis folks up here. We can use y'all. Y'all, teach them. It's a community project. Y'all who are going to sign up and help V in the ramp up to the full-on kids ministry in the fall. Y'all, teach them diligently. Come alongside these parents who need that kind of assistance. But but also, y'all, like teach the next generation. Those college students are going to come in here like a wave in September and pour into those students who are the next generation who statistically they should not be in this room. They shouldn't be here, but they are here. And it really is a miracle. And the Lord is using the means of this church in order to accomplish that miracle. I had a dinner with some of the Amherst College students uh, this, this past uh, Friday night. And uh, most of them I just met because they've been watching on the live stream and they haven't been able to come in person. Some of them are here today. And we just had an incredible conversation. Uh, and I had all of them share, it was like eight of them. They all shared their testimony and I got to hear their stories. Which I love hearing testimonies. I mean, it just encourages me to hear the work of God in an individual's life. Um, but one of the things that encouraged me the most is that in those stories, and this happened multiple times, there were names like Faith and Rachel and Hapsheba and Nate and Spina. These are students that have already graduated and moved on, but they were gospel fluent students. And they passed on the gospel to the next generation of students. And the eight students at that table, their eyes were wide and they were full of fire and they were wanting to pass on that gospel to the next generation of Amherst College students. They were deep and they were daily. So I hope you hear this call to gospel fluency, this this call to be a part of a legacy of passing on gospel truth to the next generation. It's for all y'all, right? Not just to the parents with biological kids. That, that is certainly true, but it is for all of us in this room. We're reminded of that gospel that we believe every time we come to this table. We're reminded of the night on which Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, when he took bread and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. You talk about gospel fluency. He is the gospel, right? He's like, my own body is going to be the gospel. I'm going to let my body be crucified the very next day in order to save and redeem his people. Not just that generation, but the next and the next and the next. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He knows his people, they need forgiveness of sin. They, they, They need to be transformed from sin. And, and they know, and, and he knows that he's not just saving individuals, but he's saving a covenant community. Just as Moses was talking to a covenant community in Deuteronomy 6, Jesus is talking to this covenant community, to those disciples that would then make disciples, who would then make disciples, who would even influence us in this room. A massive generation after generation after generation of, of believers that pass on this deep and daily faith from one generation to the other. And so let's be reminded of this gospel that we believe as we come to this table. Let's be reminded of the fact that this has been done generation after generation after generation, and that we've been entrusted 
with the gospel such that we want to pass on this deep and daily truth to the next generation. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for those that gave us the gospel. We wouldn't know the gospel if it wasn't for someone else who had some sense of deep and daily walk with you. And we saw that and we, we beheld it and it, it, it authenticated this truth that's changed our lives. And so we're so grateful for that, God, in that you, in your wisdom, have used imperfect people like us. You, you've used imperfect families and imperfect church families to pass the gospel truth throughout the generations. And so we, we, we celebrate that today. We observe that today as we take this bread and cup. We also, God, we ask for grace uh, to take this and pass it to the next generation, both to the biological children that make up the families in this congregation, but also the spiritual children that are to come. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.